Thank you for tuning in to this anniversary series episode of Movie Geeks United. In this episode, we celebrate the 35th anniversary of Terms of Endearment, the James L. Brooks family comedy drama, and Oscar Darling, that starred Deborah Winger, Shirley MacLaine, and Jack Nicholson. This episode features a wonderful and wide-ranging interview with another of the film's co-stars, Jeff Daniels, and it was conducted in 2009 by host Arenada Diaz from our sibling podcast, Back by Midnight. Where have you been all night, Flap? I'm sorry, and I, I fell asleep on that big sofa at the library again. I, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm on to you. I'm not doing anything. Oh, no. Hey, yes, Mom, you please. are. I hate it when you get this unhappy, okay? We go through this stage every time. No, no, don't change the subject. What's the subject? That I'm on to you. You wouldn't try to look so innocent unless you were guilty. You're going to have to take my word for it. You, you have no other choice. No, no, no. No, no, no. Oh, whoa. Excuse me. Uh, I'm... Emma, you... You always get a little paranoid in your first few months, okay? Just... If you are doing something, and you're trying to make me feel crazy because I'm bearing our child, then you may have just sunk to a point so low that you will never recover. You may have just panicked, Flap. And trying to save yourself, you've thrown out your character and your principles. Now, the only way you could possibly redeem yourself and be the man that God intended you to be is to admit to me anything that you might have been doing last night. Because if you don't do that, if you don't do that right now, you are a lost man. A shell. A bag of shit dust. I was kind of earmarked to go into my family's lumber business and uh, being the oldest son and it's a kind of generational kind of business. And... Uh, I just, uh, I was in a small town, and this uh, drama teacher, choir teacher, decided to do musicals, and when you do musicals, you usually need guys. And in a small town, there weren't enough guys who could sing and also play sports. and So she was really trying to round up just anybody who could be in, in this case, South Pacific, and she needed <laughs> sailors. So she kind of, she knew me from the choir class, so she kind of grabbed me after a basketball practice and threw me on stage and and it really was just something that I was naturally good at I knew what to do to uh, hold and entertain people you know 600 people in an auditorium and whether it was playing the lead in a musical or a bit part it we just kind of came naturally so I just kept doing it and when you went to school and, and left school to to go to New York to pursue this were you uh, a prodigal son or was it like was it a, a blessing you know a family blessing they knew um all through high school that there was something going on there was something that you know i stood out and they were the parents were told in particular you know he you need to watch this one there's something going on and mm -hmm. i just kept getting better and better and they she kept throwing this teacher kept throwing bigger and bigger parts you know at me and and then i went to college and uh after a bit of trying to bang my way in, you know, into it or, you know, get in the door, I got in and I started to win a couple of awards. And then I met a guy who had a repertory. It was kind of a, at another college. I auditioned for this kind of 16-member troupe. Of, we were going to do four plays in the spring of 1976. And one of the directors was from New York, it turns out. And it turned out to be Marshall W. Mason, who was at the time the artistic director of Circle Repertory Company in New York. Wow. And a huge break. I mean, one I just mm -hmm. kind of fell into. I just went and auditioned, hoping to get some experience. Well, I got the lead in one of his plays that he was directing, Summer and Smoke. Mm -hmm. And he said, before we even did our first performance, he said, well, you know what you should do with your life, don't you? And I was like, well, you know, I'd kind of, he goes, you should come to New York. You should join Circle Rep as an apprentice. No promises, but I can help you get your foot in the door in New York. And so I did that. 
And so, uh, so tell me, so what was that like? That that late seventies New York theater experience. It certainly was was um, more vibrant. It seemed. I mean, th- th- this was the off Broadway scene, so it was. You know, I really was. Broadway was foreign to me. Um, you know, people like Kevin Klein were doing Pirates of Penzance and and things like that. We were off Broadway. We were downtown, and everything was new plays. Joe Papp was doing it. Um, you know, certainly Second Stage was kicking in at that time. Um, Circle Rep and, and and many others. You know, were doing. Sam Shepard was still around. Um, Lanford was hadn't even he hadn't won the Pulitzer yet, and it really was. Uh, for an actor to come from college and um, academic uh, academics and you know that kind of here's another play from Dramatist Play Service and it was directed by Marshall Mason who's standing right here. Um, that was pretty heady stuff. So now you go to New York and there's Lanford Wilson sitting in a chair, trying to figure out his, the second act of his new play. <laughs> and there's John Bishop and there's Corinne Jacker and Albert Inarato and. and you know, on and on, Barilla Kerr. I mean, it was just these living, breathing playwrights. And that, for me, as it turned out years and years later, as I created my own theater company in Michigan and turned myself into a playwright, I was always interested in the writers. Mm-hmm. And so to be able to meet a Lanford uh, Wilson, you know, at a 21 years old was, uh, you know, I never forget. I never forget the first time I saw him. It's Lanford Wilson, the guy who wrote Hot O Baltimore, sitting right there, right. having trouble figuring out his next play. That fascinated me. And so at what point, or was it almost from the beginning, that, yes, you're doing theater, and that's sort of your first love, or that's the introduction to acting, but also going on, I guess, auditions for TV and film, because if I know you're credits correctly your first appearance i believe is on a, a hawaii 50 episode i think so uh there were some well there were some commercials before that where i was at least in front of the camera but that's probably right hawaii 50 1979 uh so was that viewed as okay i'm gonna as just supplementing the theater or were you interested in like you know getting a show or getting a movie I always I always had my eye on film, and uh, I saw when I was at Central Michigan University before I even did the big audition that where I met Marshall. Mm-hmm. I uh, saw Dog Day Afternoon, and mm-hmm. it came out. I'm going to guess seventy five, seventy six. Seven, yeah, around. And there. and I just loved Pacino in that. Loved him and loved Casals and loved what you know. I I went to it maybe half a dozen times skipped classes and went to see that until I thought I could saw the, see the script. See the script and see the choices. I wanted to see what Pacino's choices were. Because I realized after seeing it so many times, it was just, it, there was a script. And he had it in his hand and he had to, just like me, figure out how to do it. And this is what he came up with. And so after I saw it, I said, whatever it is he's doing, I want to go figure out how to do that, and that meant I had to go to New York. And so I went to New York and joined Circle, and they taught me that. What was beautiful about Circle was that because you were off-Broadway, there was no presentational aspect to the performance. We were playing to 150 people, which is kind of like playing in a medium Mm close-up. You know, the audience is so there that they can see you thinking. You don't have to send it out because you're in an 11,000-seat house. And so there was no transition to film. So, so inevitably, you know, circle rep, you know, you can, they can't employ you all the time. And even mm-hmm. if they did, you can barely make a living. So I, I knew they, you know, Marshall came to me one one summer. He said, you know, we've really got nothing for you next year. I mean, this would be a time to, you know, go. And, it, and, it must and I been... said, and I was like, great, because they'd been so great to me and so yeah. helpful and. Uh, and I'd learned so much, and I'd, I'd worked so much, easily a dozen shows or something. Mm-hmm. So I, I said, yeah, okay. And so I turned the agents loose and just started auditioning and auditioning, and that's when I got Ragtime and then Terms of Endearment after that. Well, before we, we get to, to Terms, I, I guess it must have also been encouraging, uh, you know, Dog Day Afternoon and Pacino to know that he also was a theater person first and would go back and forth between the two. 
Yeah, and that seemed to be where the good actors went. You know, again, this is a 20, 21-year-old kid coming out of the Midwest. I didn't, you know, my connection with Marshall was New York, so that drove the decision. But once there, and when you read all those Samuel French and Dramatist Play Services plays, and you see Robert Duvall, and you see Dustin Hoffman's name, and, and, and Pacino as young actors starting out, you're going, well, okay, that's where the really good actors went, was New York. So mm-hmm. that's where I need to go if I'm going to be a, considered a good actor. So that's that's what I did. And and then subsequently, having done all the films, when you do a show eight times a week and you make it look like it's happening for the first time eight times a week for month after month after month, that's a great school, great training for doing 20 takes on a shot mm-hmm. and so that you can tell instantly the theater actors the people the, the actors who've had theater because they can make it look like it's happening for the first time on number 19 mm-hmm. and the people who haven't had theater they're cooked after three or four right cooked now they're doing things different and they can't repeat it and they can't you know mm-hmm. and so it, it was it was a great um a great place to go for me knowing i wanted to also do film and so, Ragtime is your first big credit. You play, I believe, the character P.C. O'Donnell. Yeah. And uh, so what is that like? I mean, you you get this part in Ragtime, and it's Milos Foreman, and it's this big epic and so forth. What was that as a training? I'm assuming some kind of training in that, okay, this is film, and so this is different than theater, but it's also something I, I do want to do. Well, it's it's you're there. You're instantly thrown into a mass. You're thrown into the fire, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I didn't have a leading role. I didn't have what Howard Rollins had to deal with. You know Howard had a leading role in that thing, and Mandy Patinkin and guys like that. So I was able to come in for my week or two, and observe. And maybe I had one line, you know, or maybe I just stood there while Cagney talked. But I was there all day. So what was that like standing there watching Cagney talk? Well, I mean, we I watched his screen test yeah. because Cagney didn't think he could do the role. He was, I'm going to say, 81 at the time, maybe. Yeah. He basically stopped working, didn't want to work, and Milos Forman really pursued him for the part of the commissioner. And so they did, he wanted a screen test. Cagney wanted a screen test. And so they rented out one of the studios at uh, um, Channel 13 here in New York, and Never forget it. Kenny Mc... They had Kenny McMillan come in, and uh, half a dozen of us who were, you know, policemen, and for a scene with between Kenny and the commissioner, and it was four pages long, and you know, we're just in the room as background, and mm-hmm. uh, so we're in there, and uh, Cagney comes in on two canes with uh, someone helping him, and he sits in the chair. Couldn't have been nicer, but he was definitely eighty-one, <laughs> and. He couldn't remember the lines, and it just, I mean, we were in there two hours, and Milos cut the scene from four pages to three pages, to two pages, to one page, to four lines, and he finally, I mean, he would, Kenny McMillan would say his line, and Cagney would look at him and look down at the script and try to find it, and then come back up, and eventually he was able to get the one page and kind of relax a little bit, and you could see at the time, you know, this is 1979, 1980, black and white monitors, and you could see the close-up, and you could see Cagney's face. And that's when I saw it. You could see him become Jimmy Cagney. Mm-hmm. And even at 81, you could see it happen. And, well, I'm going to tell you. And he would come point at Kenny McMillan. And you could see it, and Milos saw it. And, you know, it's editing. Mm-hmm. And you could cut back and forth, and he Milos knew that he could edit a performance out of Cagney mm. and, and and eventually got even more than that. But Cagney realized he could still do it. Milos mm. knew he could do it and Milos said, you're going to be fabulous, you're going to be wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> and that was it. The only other time I've seen that was with Clint right. doing uh, blood work. I've seen see Clint's the nicest, easiest, most generous guy in the world. And then when they put the camera on him and he goes, alright, go ahead, he you could see him. It's like air goes into him. He just lifts up, and it's Clint Eastwood. Right. And then when he's done, it goes away. Beautiful to watch. 
And so Ragtime comes out. And so from Ragtime, how did you get the role of uh, Flap? I had gone up. I'd been going up on a lot of films by that point, and uh, I'd gotten close on a few. Um, and then was just one of you know the, the the regular four or five really good actors that would usually funnel down into the final callbacks for a certain film. And uh, and Jim Brooks had me come in, and maybe there were I don't know two three hundred guys he'd seen both coasts. And he told me later, he said, you were the only guy that convinced me that you had read all those books that Flap was supposed to have read. <laughs> I don't know how you walk in with that, you know. I certainly didn't, but that's right. what Jim saw. So months went by because the movie went into turnaround. No one wanted to do it. and They had Shirley, but nobody else. And then they got Deborah. But Deborah had casting approval, so then Deborah came into New York with Jim, and we read through all the scenes, mm-hmm. and uh, that seemed to go okay. But again, you don't hear. Mm-hmm. And then finally, you read in Liz Smith that they're going to do terms of endearment after the first of the year, and you're waiting for a while. Am I in it? Am I in it? And you finally get the call, and yes, you are. And so what is it about that, what do you think it is about that character? I just saw the film the other night, actually, by happenstance. It's been playing on HBO. And I'd seen it a bunch of times as a kid, and then I hadn't seen it for a while, so I saw it again. And even as a kid, I remember when I saw it, uh, your character, the character of Flap, for what he does in the film, he's never one who you never grow to dislike him. He manages to always, even when he messes up, he's, you always feel bad for him. And you feel, even up to a point, you kind of wish uh, Shirley McLean's Aurora would give him a break now and then. And that's very, I find that very tricky to do. And I, I don't think every actor could have done it. I found that, I think that's what makes that character special. Well, it starts with McMurtry's book and and the writing there, and followed up by the great writing of Jim Brooks. I mean, it was just so well written and so well um, defined. That said, you know, it's it's not this kind of movie creation. Mm-hmm. It's, there's nothing false about the character. The character is so human. Mm-hmm. The flaws are there, and and you know, we I think we cringe at Flap because. I mean, yeah, there's some extremes to, you know, have your wife have cancer and then you're having this affair. Uh, John Edwards. So, you know, it's not, it doesn't, he's so human. He's so accessible to us. We know him or we are him or we, you know, this kind of pompous kind of thing. And yet behind that is this kind of insecurity and fear. I mean, it's, there's nothing... um, faults about it it's we know this guy we've seen this guy we've met this guy mm-hmm. you know we are this guy and so i i think um you know and the fact that he's trying to and he feels horrible and he feels the guilt mm-hmm. uh and, and he admits i don't know how i'm going to do the kids i don't know how to you know i mean how many uh, every parent has at one time are going oh what the hell am i doing with these kids where's the mm-hmm. instructional where's the instruction board so i i, I think it's just very um accessible and uh in that way it's kind of uh all the uglier you know in a way that's what actors do i mean i've always kind of chosen characters and or they've chosen me in this case but it's uh, i've always liked that you know about uh, truly showing the good and the bad of a character and and maybe that becomes more uh, you know it's not like you create an image and play to that and then at the end of the movie you have to have the big speech where you're likable again i've never you yeah. know believed in that your scenes you you really only have two types of scenes to a certain extent and those are scenes with deborah winger and scenes with Shirley mclean what is what is the different temperaments of those two types of scenes that you have to do throughout the film well, lines are lines, and acting's acting, and and real is real. Honesty is honesty. It's all kind of the same thing. Uh, Deborah certainly, you never see where the I don't know, say the character starts, but when they say action, she's already there, mm-hmm. you know. And where Shirley is kind of more of the school of there's a character to be, you know, uh, put on or to, for to dive into. 
Mm-hmm. Um, both were equally, you know, real by the end of the day. Uh, but just the approach was different, you know. Um, and, uh, what, and what about being directed by a first-timer, writer-director? What well, I, I didn't know it at the time, but having done it so many times since, uh, it's it's for me it's preferable because, you, you know, on a movie you get to have the writer on the set, which is a luxury, usually. Mm-hmm. And uh, to have the guy who wrote it and now is directing it, um, there's no confusion about what the writer intended. Mm-hmm. You know, the director is not going to misrepresent or misinterpret, that's for mm-hmm. sure, or try to put his own spin on it that really doesn't serve the story. So, um, yeah, Jim was very, just wonderful. You know, what I don't remember what he did or didn't know about camera, but that's why you have DPs. You mm-hmm. kind of explain the look you want or what you're trying to do with it, and that's the DP's job, you know. So I've I've always I I really liked it. He was so wonderful, you know. Every the choices, and it seems to be the writers too. The choices that he ultimately wanted me to do were things I never would have thought of. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I think uh, it's not always you, you don't always have to be a writer to do that as a director. But uh, that's what that was my experience with Jim. It's just he was so. The choice he wanted me to make was so unique and and uh, uh, wonderful, and and you just kind of, as an actor, just end up executing it. And so, when you saw the film put together, you know, in the, kind of the whether the a rough cut or a, the finished product of it, did you know when you saw it, like, because here's the here's your first really major role, did you know when you saw it that this wow, this is really going to connect, or were you are you the type of person where you know, you can't see your. You know, you can't see the work, work that you're in because you're looking at, at your performance. No, and I, I was too young. I mean, you you don't know. I, I I was so thrilled to be included and that I wasn't cut out of the movie and all of those you know, reactions. Right. The fact that it was uh, received uh, as well as it, as it was received, um, you know, was a huge huge bonus. <laughs> Deborah Winger is Emma Greenway Horton. I got some good news. Well, I'm officially pregnant. You're not happy for me. You can get so mad if you're not happy. Shirley MacLaine is Aurora Greenway, her mother. Why should I? Why should I be happy about being pregnant? Jack Nicholson is former astronaut Garrett Breedlove. And they are all coming to terms. What is it, Mama? You are not special enough to overcome a bad marriage. <laughs> Listen to her, she's going crazy. Emma, your mother boycotted your wedding. She hates your husband. And she only holds you in medium esteem. It, it, so it comes out around the holiday season of 83, and it becomes this big hit with momentum. What was that like for you? Because, you know, you'd been in theaters, you know, for the last few years. But I'm sure there was this, uh, I'm sure you started getting, oh, your flap uh, on the street. Did you start getting that? Yeah, a little bit. That was uh, the start of all that, yeah. But it was still, I I still, you know, it's different than a play. You open a play, and if you're lucky enough that it's a a hit, Mm -hmm. instantly you can feel it in the audience. Right. You open a movie that's a hit, you know, maybe you can walk by the movie theater and see the marquee or see you on one of four movies that day being shown, but... You don't feel it. There's nothing physical. There's no connection, really. Mm-hmm. So you just keep you re, you're, you're told that you're ahead. Right. But where it where it where it happens is two weeks later, three weeks later, you get a call to go meet Woody Allen <laughs> on Purple Rose, and so yeah. I mean, just how oblivious I was, mm-hmm. and how fast things started to move for me. Mm-hmm. was the movie came out, and I mean, maybe it was even 10 days. I want to say it was 10 days, because it was like the end of the, f- the first week of December. 
that I got the call and I went to meet Woody uh, to go into Purple Rose Cairo and I had to screen test and I tested for him and then um, you know it seemed to go well and then I was you know getting rid of the safari hat and putting my clothes to go back to the city and you know who knows and Woody came over and he said uh, so you know what have you done and I blanked I didn't I didn't even mention terms of endearment. Right. I looked at Woody Allen and said, "Well, I was in a, a Hawaii Five-O." <laughs> and he looks at me, and I, you know, I, kind of nods, and then walks. I said, "Woody," and he turns back. And I said, "Thank you." <laughs> As in, I'll never see him again. <laughs> and this was wonderful, and I can say I met Woody Allen. Right. You know, in, in, in the thank you, and then he leaves, and then two days later, we get a call. You got it. Boy, I can't wait to get out of these clothes and hit some of the night spots. Well, children, let's not waste any time. The floor show at the Copacabana starts in ten minutes, and we're meeting the Countess and Larry Wilde. Well, I am very impressed. I really am. You have yourself quite a place here. <laughs> you know, I still can't get over the fact that 24 hours ago I was in an Egyptian tomb. I didn't know any of you wonderful people. And here I am now. I'm on the verge of a madcap Manhattan weekend. My God, you must really love this picture. Me? You've been here all day, and I've seen you here twice before. You mean me? Yes, you, you, you. This is the fifth time you're seeing this. Quickly. I gotta speak to you. Oh, my God. And considering you had a major role in Purple Rose, uh, two major roles, really. Yeah. Uh, Imagine getting handed that script. Yeah. But I said, I'm curious, because, you know, we all hear the, the story that. You only get the pages that you're in, but I'm curious. Was it? A, did you actually get the full script? Yeah, I got the full script because I was, except for maybe one scene, I was mm-hmm. in every scene. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, but I also got the, uh, you know, the uh, edict. You know, if you don't say a word about the script, I didn't. Right. Now you play a a depression era actor, and then so there's that acting, and then you're playing a character within the film, because Mia Farrow's character loves going to the movies. So you, you kind of, I guess it must have been, it was a kind of fun, I mean, you're playing two different acting styles, because you're playing a, a 30s acting style, which is, I guess, more theatrical and outgoing uh, in their Broadway Baxter kind of role. So it yeah, was, it, it, it was pretty self-explanatory. I mean, you'd read it, and you kind of go, oh, okay, I get it, I get it. You know, the actor from Hollywood is, you know, that insecure star, so mm-hmm. that's that's fun to send that up. Um, the character who was on screen who came off uh, was a little trickier. Um, but then you you just play two or three colors, or you know you just mm-hmm. simplify, 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 because those those characters, at least this one in this particular kind of mediocre movie from the 30s, mm-hmm. uh, was uh, there wasn't much to him. So when he comes off the screen, there's not much to him. These two or three things. And mm-hmm. it's the other guy that's that's you know the completely insecure you know fool. Right. Well, uh, as we start wrapping this up, I want to I have a, a list of some of your credits here, and I just want to go through some of these, and I'll I'll just throw out a title, and whether you an anecdote or an impression, you know, you can share related to that to that film. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'll start with I guess the film after Purple Rose of Cairo, which is one of my all-time favorite films. And that's something wild. Yeah, that was a a joy to do because it was uh, Jonathan Demme, mm-hmm. and uh, he 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 makes it so much. You so want to go to work every day, and everybody was making the same movie, and uh, you know there was no such thing as a bad idea with Jonathan. Mm-hmm. You know, you could try anything, and uh, he really encouraged you to really kind of you know. Uh, stretch and and you know be outrageous and you know all that stuff. I mean all that stuff that sometimes it's it's wonderful and you can use it and when it isn't you toss it. But it really I mean Jonathan's the kind of guy he could have a hundred grand to make the movie or a hundred million and he'd have the same enthusiasm you know at the start of every day. Well, I got to ask you about two scenes in something wild. Uh, I guess uh, I, they're just so endearing and so funny. Uh, one is late in the film, the the prom sequence, um, the the class reunion sequence, 
and that is your uh, dance sequence. Your, I guess, your yeah. first on-film dance sequence. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> choreographed or just kind of improvised on the spot? Completely improvised. And what it was was there was this really good dancer right next to me. Right. And uh, you know this black guy that really had the moves and could moonwalk. And Jonathan wanted me to moonwalk a little bit, so I had this guy show me some moonwalk. But then everything else, I just kind of, you know, we just rolled. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I said, John, I, I think I'm just going to, you know, kind of steal from this guy on camera. And he goes, great idea. So that's what we did. And then I, you know, would burst into the moonwalk and, you know, do the white man's version, you know. But basically it was, yeah, it was all kind of happened on camera. And the other, I guess, key scene, i got to ask, uh, your first big, I guess, sex scene uh, with Melanie Griffith. And yeah. it's a very, it's an extended scene, and it's actually a very funny scene, and it goes from erotic to discomfort to humor to back to erotic again. So, what was that scene like? Because it's not a normal movie sex scene that you that is obligatory that you feel is usually sex scenes are kind of obligatory in movies, but here this is actually <laughs> there's actually character uh, details in this scene. Well, it's that same thing. It's the straight guy who gets in trouble, and and mm-hmm. it's accessible. You know, you, as in a, the audience, they're kind of led into it, and uh, you know, we're allowed into that, and so we're there with him, and uh, uh, and taken along with him, and all of that. And that's that's the kind of the great part of, of this particular character is that he, you know, that every man thing, uh, right. and sometimes every man characters, certainly in this case, grab the audience as he goes into a particular scene, and mm-hmm. I think that's that's the case. And finally, on, on something wild. What's it like? I mean, because the film has its own rhythm for a good for for two thirds, and then Ray Liotta comes in, yeah. and kind of just he he disrupts the rhythm, but in the best way possible. Nah, but when it, Liotta it, came on the scene, what what was? I'm sure that that must what, did that ener- that that energize the, the everyone to the next level because I mean it, it is such a whirlwind performance that comes out of nowhere. Yeah, and that's part of the fun. In a way, that we're a setup for when Ray comes in and completely, you know, turns everything over. And and here's this happy-go-lucky straight, you know, straight man, you know, every man who now is in this very dangerous situation that Ray played beautifully. And uh, again, we're dragged into that. And I think that's the accessibility of the character again, dragging us into the world of Ray Liotta. Well, in the next title, and it's, I feel it's an underrated film, I remember I, I saw quite a bit when I was younger, House on Carroll Street. Uh, yeah, I, I love the period movie. I love the FBI thing about it. Um, Peter Yates. Um, and Mandy Patinkin. And Mandy and Kelly. And it was, um, you know, you got to wear a hat. <laughs> yeah, that was, I liked, I liked that one, yeah. Yeah, I, I like those kind of period kind of things, you know. Yeah. And so then I guess we could say your first quote-unquote um, action thriller, um, Arachnophobia. Yeah, yeah, that was a movie. I, I had done a lot of films. You know, I kind of got out of the gate real good, real real quickly and real strong, and, and immediately started doing my off-Broadway thing where I started taking some independent films, you know, checking mm-hmm. out and and uh, Grand Tour and uh, a couple others. And, and you know, and, and the, the star, you know, right. no longer shown. So I, I you know, uh, um, arachnophobia was me going to the agents going, I need to be in a movie that somebody actually sees. And so we, they found this thing that Frank Marshall was going to direct, and he had pretty much only produced up to that point. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, great, sounds great. And, uh, you know, the First class operation, Amblin Entertainment, and Frank right. Marshall and Kathy Kennedy, and it really was just you know you're working with the A team when it comes to production value, and so that was uh, I enjoyed that one, you know, it was uh, and it it was strange because I think they kind of didn't think much of it at the time that we were doing it, and then they tested it up in Oregon, mm-hmm. and it just was like a roller coaster ride. People went out of their minds. Mm-hmm. And so a movie that the studio kind of said, ah, well, it's going to tank, but it's for Frank, and so he'll he'll do something good for us next time. And then it tested great, and they immediately then said, okay, well, great, it's going to make a hundred million. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And then because it was spiders, there are some people that just will not go see a movie about spiders. Right. Just can't drag them. So I think it came in at about 65, 70 million mm-hmm. and was deemed a failure mm-hmm. by the studio. It's like, <laughs> well, wait a minute. You didn't think it was going to make a buck when you first got your hands on it. But, oh, well, Hollywood. I can envision the crib all around the clear as day. I can still feel a feeling of waking up, just drowsy, peaceful, secure, and then there it was. Probably just a daddy long leg. Yeah, well, it seemed huge. And it just came relentlessly, just crawling through the bars of the crib. And then as it touched my bare leg... I know, you were just wearing a diaper. All yeah? of my limbs involuntarily froze. Just froze. You'll probably still have to sleep as all. Well. I was paralyzed, Molly. I still get paralyzed, okay? Just please try to understand how this makes me feel. I was just physically unable to stop it from crawling along my naked skin. Just, I can still feel it hairy little legs, just then up to my face. <laughs> you know, it's just a feeling of utter helplessness, being explored by an alien thing, that's all. Well, I guess the uh, the postscript is, uh, when, uh, when you see a spider in your house, do you kill it or are you uh, compassionate? Only if it's as big as my hand do I kill it. And that's how big the, the one in the basement at the end of the movie was, as big as my hand. Mm-hmm. The thing was huge. Uh, Gettysburg which is an interesting film because Ted Turner uh, kind of made for television, if I remember correctly, originally, but then it goes theatrical instead first. Yeah, it was a a miniseries. That's what Mm -hmm. we were shooting. We were shooting, uh, I want to say two-hour, two-hour, kind of a four-hour miniseries, you know, I mean, just kind of two nights, big event, TNT Mm -hmm. kind of thing. So it's shot for the square box, for television, and... uh, for me, the role was, uh, I loved the role and uh, went ro- dove right into the research and uh, learned a lot about the Civil War and became fascinated by it. And, you know, Chamberlain is one of these great unsung American heroes that, that prior to the movie coming out, no, many, many, many people had no idea who he was or what he did, how important the Battle of Gettysburg was to the war. Mm-hmm. So um, that was all wonderful. It was a great experience. Um and then, you know, they decided to make a four-hour movie out of it instead. And, uh, you know, oh and, well. Uh, what was it, I mean, you've given, I'm sure, you know, in theater and so forth, you've, haven't, you've given, quote-unquote, speeches or monologues, but as a, in a film where you're in the, you know, military uniform and you got to give the big night-before speech. What, what, yeah. I mean, that's got to be an actor's, you know, one of those, rare thing that only a few actors can say I have one of those speeches. Yeah. yeah, and it and it really is um I worked on that for about 6 weeks before mm-hmm. we shot it and uh what what made it interesting and it, it meant a lot to me when we premiered the movie um is that he he was a great orator. Mm-hmm. Chamberlain was. And I just made the choice to talk to them mm-hmm. and you know uh the soft sell on it but just to kind of really uh and when we did the premiere sam elliott sat right behind me and after that speech played he just squeezed my shoulder and then he told me later and it was i just loved him for it mm-hmm. he goes nine out of ten actors would have climbed the ladder they would have started low and built and built and built and come on, follow me to Gettysburg and off we go. Mm-hmm. And uh, he goes, you did you did the one thing that that every other actor is scared to do. Right. And uh, you know, Ron Maxwell had something to do with that. You know, mm-hmm. about how he wanted it done. But that and it and it really seemed to carry a lot more power and, and uh, seemed to work better. So I was very happy about that. I've been talking with uh, Private Buckland. He's told me about your problem. There's nothing I can do today. We're moving out in a few minutes. We'll be moving all day. I've been ordered to take you men with me. I'm told that, uh, (laughs) that if you don't come, I can shoot you. Well, you know I won't do that. Maybe somebody else will, but I won't. So, that's that. Uh, Here's the uh, situation. The whole Reb Army up that road a ways waiting for us, so this is no time for an argument like this, I tell you. We could surely use you fellas. We're now well below half strength. 
Whether you fight or not, that's that's up to you. Whether you come along is is well. You're coming. You know who we are, what we're doing here, but if you're gonna fight alongside us, there's a few things I want you to know. This regiment was formed last summer in Maine. There were a thousand of us then. There are less than three hundred of us now. Well, then, and then 1994, what was the year of 1994? Let's just, I guess, it's a year in your life because you have Speed in the summer and then Dumb and Dumber at Christmas time. Uh, yeah. So what was that year like? Uh, again, sort of um, removed. I, 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 you know, again, you're not, you know, Speed came out and I was just in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it became this huge hit, which kind of surprised us. But we were shooting, we had, we 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 had just finished shooting Dumb and Dumber, mm-hmm. and so I was so wrapped up in that, and 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 really do, taking Dumb and Dumber, trying to kind of keep the career going, mm-hmm. because you know it would was kind of fizzling and speed. You know I'm in it, but I get killed on page eighty, and you know originally in the speed script I got killed in the elevator shaft, like on page twenty, and I said you know the career is in trouble, but it's not in that much trouble. <laughs> And they said, well, there's a rewrite coming. You last longer. I'm going, oh, okay. Well, let me, let me see that. And then when that came, it was like, yeah, okay, great. So I did speed. But then you do Dumb and Dumber because I just wanted to change it up. I wanted mm-hmm. to do a comedy. Nobody really knew I could do the co- comedy. Uh, two out of three of my agents said, do not do this movie with Jim Carrey. He's going to eat you up. And I said, one, he's a nice guy. Two, there are plenty of scenes where Jim's not in. Three... I think, you know, my guy's the follower, Jim's the leader, so I, I think it's going to be fine. I'll put my comedy chops in what they're asking me to do in this movie. Unless they cut me out of the movie, I'm going to be fine, and I'm going to hold up my side of the screen. Let me let me take a chance. Hmm. So then when the movie came out, and it, I, it was number one for like six weeks in a row, um, I, it was, that's, that's where I felt it, because that movie changed... Uh, things for me as far as fame went because now I would go through any airport and they would instead of them looking at me going what's your name right because of Dumb and Dumber they looked and they said Jeff Daniels <laughs> that one movie did that no, what was that... great about it was that it that it um, it truly was funny despite the <laughs> massive critical reaction to you know get this movie off of the screens immediately um, you know, it. There was something innocent, innocent about these two guys and their stupidity, mm-hmm. that um, you know, still people watch it today. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it makes people laugh today. So you know, mission accomplished. So it to is. Speak. It is a modern classic, and I, and I gotta, I gotta assume that you, uh, I, I'm guessing that that film, and then I'm to a certain extent, Fly Away Home, that opened you up. I guess you, you, that opened you up to kids recognizing you. Is that, is that? Yeah, well, I had kids of my own by that point, and that's one of the reasons I took 101 Dalmatians. Fly Away Home, I just thought, was a great family film. Mm -hmm. Um, I loved the character, and Carol Ballard is a great filmmaker, and it just was... uh, I I just liked that story and that script, that whole creative spirit that Bill Lishman had. Uh, I I just... uh, that was one of those things that I identified with, and mm-hmm. that kind of the guy that's kind of outside the loop, and and uh, I liked that, and so that was one of the reasons I took that because of Win Dixie, right? You know, you, if you're going to do a family movie, make it so that you know it's actually interesting and not right. so broad based and broad colors and all that. So, um, yeah, I I I really like Flyway Home's one of my favorites. Shot beautifully, Caleb Deschanel yeah. and Carol. We would get to magic hour at five fifteen in the afternoon, and they could we had like fifteen minutes, and they would go, "All right, grab that plane, just start running up the hill, and they both Carol would grab a camera, and Caleb would grab a camera, just d p s just shooting great shots well speaking of great visuals, and I guess this might be your most special effects heavy film uh pleasantville yeah uh, what was uh, what was that like? And also uh, the late great J.T. Walsh's final film. Yeah, it was fun to sit around the trailers with J.T. and you know William Macy and you know veteran actors talking acting. I I remember that about it. I enjoyed that. And uh, mm-hmm. J.T. was a great 
the stories, you know. Well, I remember doing this picture, and he would tell a story. It was, you know, a survivor, you know. I mean, a lot of us, you know, Macy and all those guys, we've been doing it for decades. I mean, it's less about being proud about a certain film or how much money you're making or this or that award. It's about, you know, we're still here. We're still doing it. We're spending our life doing it. Like Marshall Mason said, you know what you should do with your life, don't you? And to be able to still be doing it is wonderful. Pleasantville was just, I, Gary Ross handed me the script and said, see if you like the character of Mr. Johnson. And I said, well, yeah, I just identify with that. <laughs> art, and the guy discovers art and the beauty of art. And, right. You know, I said, yeah, I would love to be involved. Uh, Cheaters, which I must say is one of my favorite TV films of the last decade. It was on HBO. And actually, I when I saw it on HBO, I said, this should have, I thought it should have gotten a theatrical run. I, it would have, I at the very least, I thought it would have played in art houses and done something maybe on the level of like what Election had done in the, in theaters. Yeah, that's a good comparison. Um, John Rockwell, I think his name is, uh, actor and now director, mm-hmm. uh, directed it. And uh, just a good story. Another flawed hero, very flawed hero. Mm-hmm. Uh, very human. Very, right. very. what would you do? Right. You know? I mean, that's that's kind of a, yeah. <laughs> Would you have done what he did, you know? Uh, and and he chose to do that. And if you had any kind of doubt or question whether you would or not, let's follow him because uh, he did. And mm-hmm. and so I, I really like that kind of where it grab again a character that grabs the audience and pulls you on screen with it. Well, and here's a and, and I, I'm kind of, I'm kind of curious on on the daunting task uh, when you did the remake of the Goodbye Girl because yeah. you're dealing with Neil Simon. Uh, you know, great man of the theater. But then you're also dealing with a iconic performance in movies, which is Richard Dreyfuss' uh, character. So what was that like? Well, I've never been one to shy from a challenge. And, uh, uh, yeah, it is iconic. And But I kind of said, well, let's see. You know, um, Olivier played Hamlet, but many have played him after it, you know, played the role yeah. after it. And I thought, well, maybe there's room for a different interpretation. You know, I don't know. I, it was mm-hmm. worth a try. Um, I had never worked with Neil before either. And wow. uh, it was it was probably my chance to work with Neil Simon. Mm-hmm. So um, those were the two reasons, you know. Good night and good luck, which uh, I got I to gotta feel... It- it, that must that that film experience it also must have felt like also I guess a theater experience. Well, Clooney, being an actor, he knows how to run a set. He knows what actors want, and he, and he gives actors room. He hires really good people to do what they do, mm-hmm. and um, it reminded me of Clint. Mm-hmm. It was a man set, you know. Um, uh, in that, um, yeah, you're really good. I hired you. Do it. You know, what do you think it is? Let's just do it. Let's go. And and George is really into improv and kind of, you know, just keep it loose and let's, you know, do the lines, but, you know, loosen it up. And so it was great, man, to have that kind of respect. Woody gave it. Woody Allen was the same way. Clint's the same way. Mm-hmm. It, it's Robert Altman's the same way. It's it's um, you want to deliver for that director even more. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the guy who's got his hands all over you and basically saying, I want you to do what I'm telling you to do. It's like, well, okay, we should have yeah. hired somebody else. You know, we'll just do what you want. Well, and I, uh, The Lookout, and I, I bring up The Lookout because it's an underrated film, and your performance in it, once again, kind of obviously uh, similar in, in a way, uh, some of the other roles you've done, whether it be in Speed or whatever, as the best friend, if you will. But it's such a beautifully layered performance uh, as you play, uh, you're, you play, and you play a blind character, and I'm very intimate with uh, blind, uh, blind care, blind people, and so, and this is one of the best portrayals of blindness, and it, and I, people joke when I make this observation that there's actually a, a scene of uh, of you eating, and usually you don't see blind characters eating in films because it's messy or too tricky or so forth. I mean, you'll see blind characters drinking but never eating. And I, that was a great detail in the film. I was wondering what was the prep, what, what did you do to prep for that character? Because, like I said, it's, it's a wonderful portrayal. I, um, it doesn't take much with me, I, I've found. I, uh, 
a little goes a long way in that um, I went to, uh, I'm from Michigan, so I went to the Michigan Commission for the Blind, which is located in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I just spent a day with them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the Braille teacher showed me Braille and, and really had me working on Braille and, and uh, so I could feel it. And, you know, I, I just steal <laughs> unmercifully. I, I, I uh, you know, I had a wonderful woman, Melanie, I think her name was, who who walked down the hallway like she was marching mm-hmm. with her with her stick out and, uh, you know, how you tap, 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 tap. And so uh, you just you you become her, you know, you you imitate that kind of confidence and you can see the wall coming and she knows it's there. And then she pivots and turns, you know, mm-hmm. um, counting steps. She goes, I know it's 19 steps to the curb mm-hmm. and, you know, all that stuff. You start to just take mental notes and um, then you I ate lunch with them and um, um watch them eat and watch them interact and watch you know and and you know the choice of whether to to do a kind of a you know a floating eyes kind of thing or not you know that was discussed and I kind of went with it and uh, I think they were worried about it they did a screen test and they said don't don't do that don't do that and Walter Parks was one of the producers and he showed the screen test to Spielberg and Spielberg said are you guys nuts do the floating eyes thing cuz it's very I don't know. There were guys in Kalamazoo who did that, you know. Um, But it was, um, you know, I mean, you know. I mean, you're intimate with it. They want to be independent. They don't want, you know, the ones like Lewis didn't want anyone to think that they couldn't do absolutely everything for themselves. Thank you very much. And so that's kind of what he did. He had a wonderful sense of humor about it. 1-800-Flowers, you know. Yeah, it's a beautiful bouquet. I love it. I look at it every day kind of stuff, you know. And, uh I got to ask you about, uh, you know, you talked earlier about speed, about getting killed off in the 20 page, but then the rewrite came to last a little longer. But I got, I got to ask you about Trader, because you have one of the, one of the best from last year, one of the best oh shit moments in Trader. Oh, do I? I haven't seen it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Is that where uh, the car and I'm getting beat up and uh, right. Don or Don and I are pretending we're, yeah, then right. I run down this thing, they gun me down, yeah. Right. Three scenes in a body bag, yeah. That's yeah. what I told Cheadle when I showed up. You know, it was good. to. I'd, I'd met Don years before on something else, and so here's some Cheadle doing a movie, and it's got Guy Pierce. Oh, good people, and I like the script. And You know, I showed up, and they go, we're so glad you're doing this. This this role is such a great role. I said, yeah, it's three scenes in a body bag, but yeah, I agree. <laughs> Uh, well, do check it out because it is a great moment. It's, yeah, uh, I've had a couple of those. Oh, Speed has an oh shit moment, and then the house yeah. blows up. Yeah. Right. Which mm-hmm. is, I must say, the Speed moment was Roy Scheider. I read a Roy Scheider interview about mm-hmm. Jaws, where he was looking over the side of the boat, and the camera's looking up at him, and he sees the shark. And they said, Roy, my God, what a moment when you saw the shark. How did you do it? He goes, simple. I had my face I tightened the muscles in my face a little bit, and when I looked and saw the shark, I let the muscles go. Mm. And he, you know, just a complete mm. actor trick. And mm-hmm. uh, that's basically what I did in Speed. And I've had, you know, people in Speed go, oh my God, that moment when you saw, oh my God, how'd you do it? Well, Roy Scheider told me. Yeah. <laughs> and, and finally, I guess the a, a movie that's coming up, um, State of Play. Mm hmm. And so what? What's that like? And uh, I guess, well, I guess the question is, who do you share your scenes with, and how do you think that that film's going to turn out? I have no idea. It was um, uh, great people involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Kevin, the director, I, I really liked him, and uh, he met me when I was in New York doing a play, and uh, um, and uh, you know, just one of those. It's like good night and good luck. You want to be involved with it, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I, I I think I have a couple scenes with Ben and, and a couple scenes, uh, one scene in particular with Russell, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which are two great reasons to do it. So. Right. And going back full circle to, to the theater, obviously you, you, you split your time between your, your Purple Rose Theater Company in, uh, in, in Michigan, uh, uh, Chelsea, Michigan, is that correct? Is where yeah. it's, and that's the split your time between that and you write plays for that and so forth. And then, but right now you're in New York, uh, rehearsing. And I read the name of the play, but I, it's skipping me now. But is this the uh, 
The Carnage, uh, I believe it's... Uh, God of Carnage. God of Carnage. Written by Yasmina Riza. And um, she wrote Art, mm-hmm. Lifetimes 3. Wow. And they did this play in London. Uh, they did it in Paris, and then they did it in London. And uh, I, I think it's wonderful. It's very funny. Mm-hmm. It's two couples, two sets of parents, and we each have an 11-year-old boy. And mm-hmm. our two boys uh, got in a fight on the playground, and our son took a stick and hit their son and knocked out two teeth. Mm-hmm. So the parents are sitting in the living room of of their their living room in this case, and we're kind of discussing the the boys' actions and and making mm-hmm. sure that this doesn't happen again. Mm-hmm. And of course, it you know as a parent myself, that, that just can't end well <laughs> because someone says something about your son and then you say something about theirs, and mm-hmm. then it just becomes this. And Yasmina has written this wonderfully, uh, I think the marketing for it is is right on, a comedy of manners without the manners. Um, Everything is civilized, and everything is polite, and underneath it is chaos and truth and how you really feel, and and how we really are in society. Are we ever really that, this civilized and this, you know, peace, love, and understanding, or is there this primal kind of, you know, dog eat dog under everything and, and, and so i think she she addresses that in this kind of strange setting this kind of simple again accessible setting that that ends up just blowing up in front of the audience's face and if i understand the cast and i guess your counterpoint is james gandolfini and your yeah significant your better half is uh hope davis Hope Davis and myself, and then the other couple is Marcia Gay Harden and, and James Gandolfini. And so are rehearsals going well? Uh, they are going well. We're actually having great difficulty uh, keeping a straight face, uh, which I think is a good sign. Um, it, it's wonderful in, in that she's written this. It's not – at times it's absolutely hilarious, and then it spins into this kind of Albee, Beckett, Pinter kind of ugliness. Um mm-hmm. Uh, pausing like Pinter and, and these kind of awkward, awkward kind of moments of painful silence. Mm-hmm. And then someone saying something just horrific to someone else and mm-hmm. then back and forth and, you know, this kind of really dissection of life and our society. You know, mm-hmm. it, It's really wonderful in the midst of all this hilarity. There, there's just some outrageous things that go on in it that... Uh, uh, well, one in particular I haven't seen on a stage. I know that, so we'll see. Well, that looks that sounds. When does it open? Uh, uh, we preview the end of this month. We open, I believe, March twenty second. That that sounds really exciting. I I I hope maybe if I'm in New York, I get to see it. It sounds sounds terrific. Uh, well, Mr. Daniel, I want to thank you for taking this time out uh, to talk about obviously in terms of endearment. We talk about many many other things. It's terrific stuff. Uh, next time. Uh, you have anything else uh, you want to come back and talk about, whether it's theater or something, another film you're really passionate about? Please, you have an open invitation to come back. I really, I, I do want to continue this conversation. I appreciate it, Aaron. Thank you very much. Happy birthday coming up. Yeah, another one. Okay. Uh-huh.